live and in color, TBS presents the new game in town, the World Football League. Brought to you by Chevrolet, whose 1975 roster features two new additions, Nova LN and the Sporty Monza 2 Plus 2, at your Chevy dealers now. And by Fireman's Fund Insurance. And Fireman's Fund Insurance is brought to you by an independent agent near you. Look for his name in the yellow pages for auto, home, life, or business insurance. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well now, how are you everybody? It's your pal Tim Hanlon and it's Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, the curious little podcast that is devoted to each week what used to be in professional sports. We uh, love every reason that we can ever find to play the wonderful theme music from the TBS television network, especially from the very hard to find footage of whatever existed in the World Football League, especially the very first season, 1974. Uh, Very uh, hard to find clips, but that uh, we've heard it and played it on a couple of other episodes. Uh, Our Howard Zuckerberg episode uh, talking about the TVS network, our Mark Speck episodes about the WFL, et cetera. But uh, we love to pull it out of the uh, archive and, and play it for you again. And we got a great excuse for you. We're going to talk about the World Football League, a, a reminiscence, yes, but sort of a, a revisit, I guess, or a, a new look uh, through the lens of ESPN.com reporter and writer uh, and essayist Ryan Hawkinsmith. Uh, we talk about the World Football League, and uh, it's about time we got back to it. Um, and uh, if you haven't read Ryan's piece from April 15th of this year, uh, just head over to ESPN.com and find it. We'll have a link for it for you from our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. Just search up this episode with Ryan, episode number 260, uh, and uh, you will find a convenient link right to it. Uh, and it's a, it's an excellent uh, and uh, well-updated story uh, with some quotes from the legendary Gary Davidson himself. Uh, Howard Baldwin, our guest last week, uh, is referenced and uh, and and uh, quoted in the story, and and all kinds of uh, uh, great uh, pictures and um, uh, reminiscences, and uh, you know some updated little tweaks on. Uh, what we think is an ongoing and ever uh, unfolding story of the World Football League. And yes, we are desperate to uh, hopefully get Gary Davidson, uh, God willing, and uh, his interest uh, willing as well uh, on this here podcast. And uh, keep your fingers crossed, efforts are being made. 
as I stare at his uh, semi-autobiography, I guess, called Breaking the Game Wide Open, the out-of-print book uh, that was uh, published in 1974, the height of uh, the beginnings, I guess, uh, of his powers and the launch of the World Football League and all of his confidence and bravado for such. Um, but we get into that and a whole bunch of other wild and crazy things uh, with Ryan this week. Um, and uh, it, it's we kind of go all over the place about our personal and or uh, mutual understandings from our respective uh, research and, and efforts about what this World Football League thing was. Um, you know, there's so much to unearth about it. And, um, you know, it was so spectacular in its uh, audaciousness and or audacity, whatever the word is, uh, uh, plus it's folly. Um, it's, it's, it's probably of all the topics that we explore and have explored on this little podcast, uh, the most, uh, uh, combustible, um, uh, combination of both of those things, uh, aspiration, uh, and desperation, uh, shaken vigorously to create, I don't know what it was. It wasn't even a year and a half old. Uh, when all was said and done, and, and and it was actually really two leagues, if you really get down to it, a 1974 uh, initial league that, that Davidson and friends uh, got up and running, and then 1975, which was a completely different uh, construct, uh, uh, setup, financial uh, 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 composition, uh, leader in in um, Chris Hemeter. And that didn't even last a, a full 1975 season. Um, we get into all that, and it's always a great excuse to do so. And we all continue to look for not only Gary Davidson, but any other original sort of members who were there sort of around it. And we we did scratch the surface a little bit with Howard Baldwin. He was actually there sort of at the beginning uh, with an ill-fated Boston franchise that uh, never fully came to fruition. Actually, it kind of did. It, it, it wound up becoming the New York Stars. Uh, and then our, our previous guest, Upton Bell, came to the rescue of that and brought uh, the stars to Charlotte, where they became, I guess, the Charlotte stars or the Hornets, really, uh, uh, very quickly. It's debatable as to what day uh, the nickname was uh, for, for the team. Um, but uh, listen to that episode with Upton Bell uh, to hear sort of that sort of story. And by the way, also listen to our episode 100 with John Sterling. Uh, the current uh, voice, one of the current voices of the New York Yankees, who was at the time the voice for the short-lived New York Stars. That's a that's a hoot and, and and then some of an episode. We got a couple of clips of his his calls of those games in there too. So uh, we love the World Football League in all its glory and um, I don't know uh, demise and uh, a great excuse. This week, our conversation with ESPN, he says, columnist. Ryan Hockensmith, as we remember and reminisce and wonder still about the World Football League. Coming up in just a moment's time. Our sponsor this week, all right, how about it? 417 Helmets. 417Helmets.com. 417Helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. Our pal Judd, uh, Judd Lasher, that is, in, in uh, Springfield, near Springfield, Missouri, southwestern part of Missouri. Um Longtime sponsor and great friend and patron of the show. And of course, like the name implies, mini helmets is what you will find at 417helmets.com. 
this is the real Megilla. This is real high quality stuff. Uh, Shut, um, uh, Brand, uh, Riddell, uh, some of the other sort of uh, uh, makers of the bigger helmets themselves. Uh, but the real materials uh, used in those uh, uh, official uh, use helmets uh, in mini helmet form. Uh, I don't know how Judd does it, but um, they are are one of a kind items. Uh, they make great gifts for that football fan in your life. Uh, Judd can do all kinds of leagues and does all kinds of teams and leagues from from the past, uh, as well as custom helmets. It doesn't even have to be a, a football team. I mean, it could be your high school team. It could be some other thing. It could be your corporation or, or, or company or your civic organization in mini helmet form. Just give them the colors and the logo and stuff, and boom, uh, Judd can make it for you. But, of course, this week, the excuse to go to 417helmets.com and, of course, a promo code for you, good seats for 10% off all of your purchases, is, of course, all of the great and every single stinking team great of the World Football League. Uh, these mini helmets are a sight to behold, and they're even more fun to own for yourself. Uh, and it even gets into some of the intricacies. For example, the Philadelphia Bell, as you may remember, were a team in both the 1974 and 1975 versions of the WFL. Judd's got both versions there. They're a little different. Little, uh, and you'll see the intricacies there on the website at 417helmet.com. You can get each version thereof. Um, and again, all of the teams and all the various iterations are there. Um, I'm I'm kind of a big fan of of both the Southern California Sun and the Hawaiians. To me, those are the most uh, breathtakingly uh, colorful versions. But uh, you can get them all, collect them all, shall we say? Uh, and they're all there for you. All the WFL uh, mini helmets uh, there for you at four seventeen helmets dot com. Again, it's collectible helmets and more. And a promo code for you when you visit and purchase early and often. The promo code Good Seats to save ten percent off all of your purchases. Thanks, Judd, and thanks for seventeen helmets dot com for your sponsorship of the show and especially of this week's episode coming up right now. Our conversation we had a couple of weeks back with our new pal Ryan Hawkinsmith from ESPN.com. Let's talk about his great article about the WFL. Uh, and I'm sorry, I forgot to give you the uh, actual title of that article. When you go to ESPN.com and search it up, it's called The Renegade Who Took On the NFL and the NBA and the NHL, of course, Gary Davidson. And here's our conversation with Ryan. Please, as always, enjoy. So why don't you give our audience a bit of a background on your um, a credibility factor here? You're a reporter for ESPN. What's your background in all of that? Uh, what, have, what have your beats been? Um, and just a little bit of uh, sort of uh, foundational stuff before we get into how the story hit your radar and, um, you know, uh, and why. Well, I started at ESPN. I drove right there out of college. So I've been there ever since 2001 through now. And I started out as an intern and I, I had an interest in being a writer. And so I did that for a couple of years um, and it didn't quite work out. So they asked me to try as an editor. Um, I was in my, I guess, late 20s, started having kids. Um, if you Google me, you'll see there were some drugs and alcohol, drug and alcohol problems that popped up for me that kind of derailed me in many, many different ways, uh, professionally being one of them. And so I tried tried my hand as an editor and from 
from I'd say 2005 or so through um, just March 1st of this year, I was a full-time editor at ESPN. I worked my way up to deputy editor, oversaw a couple of sports and had a bunch of people that reported to me, had a bunch of writers that worked um, for me and other editors. And I managed that as an editor. And I, I, you know, I started writing a couple pieces here or there over the last couple of years. And then I thought, boy, my dream my whole life was to be a writer. And I wonder if I could do it. I wonder if in my mid forties, if I could go for it as a reporter and as a, as a writer again. And so I asked to change positions. And so I got that opportunity starting in March 1st, I became full-time writer. Um, but whenever I started thinking about the WFL, I was still an editor uh, at the time. And so, um, but when I, when I got this chance, I thought, boy, this is one of my first ones um, to see if I could sink my teeth into. And so here we are. Okay. So a couple of things to unpack there. Were you a writer in college and then uh, thought that was your adjunct into the, the wacky world of ESPN? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, as a kid, I grew up, I realized that when I was about 15, I was a really good athlete, but not like I'm going to play professionally. And I thought, boy, what, that's a bummer. I, I liked, I liked the idea of a life in sports. And um, so I, I knew as like a teenager, like maybe 15 or 16, I want to be a national sports writer. And so I pursued that in college. I had a really good college career at Penn State, won a bunch of awards and learned a lot. It was a great place to go as a journalist. Let me get my plug in for Penn State for all the <laughs> journalists out there. Um, it just gave me every opportunity to succeed. Lots of good people. And, um, you know, if you want to cover sports, uh, a big, big 10 school or Stanford or one of these places that has 30 to 30 programs all winning national titles oftentimes. It, you couldn't ask for more. And so I got, I got to cover the football team while I was there. And um, yeah, this is what I'm doing right. This very moment is exactly what I used to think of as a young boy. Like I, when I grow up, I want to be, I want to do that. So here I am. Well, that's great. And, and, you know, uh, who knows and, and why, or uh, the reasons for how one gets to that point. Right. But when one knows that, right. Um, whether that's 15 or 45 or somewhere in between hell, there are people who go through their lives who never really get to that point, right? So, yeah. you know, uh, count your blessings and your uh, and the harmony of all that. And but then, then of course, the, the the logical question becomes, why the WFL then, as your first sort of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, renewed shot at all of this on the writing front. Well, you want the long version or the short version? It's a podcast. We've got all day. Okay. Okay, so the long version is that in 2001, when I started at ESPN, um, you know, I started pitching stories. And one of the really most the one of the places that was the most fertile and didn't have very many people covering it was mixed martial arts. And the access with UFC fighters at the time was incredible. It was beyond anything you could hope for with a college basketball team or an NBA team or NFL coverage. It just was like you know, the UFC would roll into New York City where I was working at the time and they'd be like, yeah, just come hang out all night. And then, you know, just hang out with the fighters the next day. And it was like beyond anything you could get your your arms around with some of the other sports. And so I started covering the UFC quite a bit early on in my career. And one of the things that happened once the UFC took off was every month there was a new startup that was going to take them on. And they had you know, they knew how to do it better and they were going to try to lure talent away and they had a TV deal in the works. And I watched everybody come for the King and they, 
they all flopped pretty miserably. And um, they, some of them did have mixed some success. They got on TV and got some good fighters. And but I watched one after the other. I saw how hard it was. You know, once a league is entrenched, how I mean, it's not impossible, but it is really hard when we talk about American sports and you talk about the biggest league from WNBA to NBA to um, NFL, NBA, these leagues have been around for a long time and have taken lots of shots at them. And they are still the preeminent um, organizations in each of their sports. And so that's the long version. I've always just had an interest in like what it takes to take on a big entrenched league. Um, and then how it's almost, it's, it's very, very difficult. And so I, I've always had that interest in watching everybody try to take on the UFC and then how the UFC responded and succeeded. Ultimately, the shorter version of the story is just that I saw, you know, we covered the AFL whenever it took on the NFL. What was that four years ago? Um, and that was, had a pretty explosive end to its story. You mean the, the, uh, um, uh, AAFL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. 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 yeah, care, yeah. Careful. Um, our, our listeners will be yelling at their devices saying, wait a minute, AFL. This kid doesn't even yeah. know. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. A, what was it? The American Alliance? What was the, the Alliance name? of the Alliance of American Football, uh, i.e., okay. the AAF? AAF. Gotcha. Yeah. So I watched that come along. And then, you know, I've seen two versions of the XFL now, or one and a half, I guess. And so I just I went down a, a rabbit hole maybe three or four years ago, looking at all the leagues that, that took a swing, all the startups that try to take a, take a run at the NFL. And I just ended up on the WFL Wikipedia page. <laughs> and I just was just reading one thing after the other and thinking, Oh my goodness, this is a, this is a movie. It's a dumpster fire. That's, that's a phrase we ended up using, you know, with my story, but boy, there was so many interesting things that happened. And I, as I assessed it, I thought, boy, they, I, I think this is just my opinion after doing this story and reading a lot about it and listening to a lot of your podcasts, the, there's a version of the WFL that really had a good chance, you know, and it, it, it went down in flames epically, but I was really struck by, I think they were actually very close in retrospect to, to actually having a chance at a real upstart that took on the NFL. I don't know if you can topple the NFL even back then, but they had a real good chance in my opinion. And so that's what, that's what drew me to it. Um, and then it, it became actually a really hard story to write because I was, um, I, I, I wanted to write a story about the WFL. I didn't want to try to write the story of, of the WFL because it's so rich. I mean, that's why I don't. How many podcasts do you think you've done just on the WFL? Oh, plenty. But but with all due respect, it kind of still really hasn't been done, Ryan. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in many respects, I mean, you, you know, the editor in you, whether that's digital or video or whatever, right? And obviously, you know, just down your hallway or on another floor, right? I mean, is the, you know, occasionally uh, verdant uh, thirty for thirty, you know, franchise. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if Connor Shell would, you know, <laughs> I, I'm sure. Let's put it this way. The irony is is uh, rich, right? Because yeah, I mean, you mentioned the AAF, which people barely remember even two plus years ago, right? Now we're on the cusp of doing it all over again uh, this year and next year with uh, the current USFL, which is its own ball of wax from, from the original version. And and the third sure. version of the XFL, you know, taking on the man that is the NFL is, is still, 
is still, uh, you know, in fashion, right? So yeah, yeah, it's been one after the other, one after the other. Well, um, but I, I guess the, the question in there is that. So, what did you think you knew about this WFL? Because you could be, especially of a, of a younger generation than than yours truly, you you could be forgiven for uh, uh, speeding by that that bump, shall we say, in in the look back of like the more glorious and richly colorful AFL, right, which was more successful, or even some of the the earlier attempts, like the AAFC back in the 50s and that kind of stuff, right? The WFL is, I don't know, I, frankly, I think even a blip on, on the historical radar. But to your point, wh- what a gigantic pothole of of intrigue it was or is still maybe. Yeah. Well, I think the, the idea that I had never heard of it, I was born in 1977, so I'm a, a middle-aged dude. I had never heard of it, and I thought, boy, that's kind of a shame because there's some interesting, there's some interesting characters, there's some interesting lessons to learn, um, and so I thought that's part of what drew me to it. Some of these other leagues that, that have maybe, I mean, this, the the USFL in the mid '80s had quite a bit of, I mean, they had a good run, and but I thought I felt like I had a, I, I felt like I did have an understanding of that on some base level, and I just thought football fans deserve to know about the WFL. So I thought it's lack of, um, you know, the lack of general public awareness of this league. I thought it added to the, it, it made me more interested in it. So, all right. What did, what did you think you knew about it then going into the story and, and what revealed itself in the process, both from the research and, and rabbit hole of research? Cause there's, there's video, not much, but it's there. It's intriguing as well as the people that you decided to and ultimately connected with to, to talk more, you know, from the first person perspective. Well, I was trying to, I felt like I could not tell this. I, I just, there, there've been a few books written about the WFL and I read Tilda Gittin's good, which I thought was a good book about it. And I just didn't think that I had the interest or ability to like write a, hundred thousand word story that kind of told you everything you everything that happened with the wfl so well, i went hold on, before the, the fact that you actually found an out of print book like that to do that's already yeah. telling you how far gone you've been in terms of research because that's a hard fi- book to find or afford and and you know it's out of print it did take a while to find but dusty Rhodes was i i enjoyed talking with dusty Rhodes. she's a great resource on this um piece and she was just like, you, you have to read that book. So I, I, I took a little while, but I got it and read it. And uh, I thought it was a really good, you know, it was an interesting book to read because it was written. I'm trying to think when it was written, probably like 1975, it had a copyright. So it was written in the moment. And so there's some things that, that came into clarity about the league many years later, you know, um, trying to remember the name of the, is it Mark Speck, the author that you had on? Is that his yes. name, Mark Speck? Yeah, he's become yeah. kind of the de facto Oh, he, a guru. Yeah. I mean, he's written, I think four books and, um, he has unpacked so much of it. Um, and just had such a good, he would admit though, even he would admit there's so much more to go, right? It's just, yeah. It's not like he's making a a gigantic living off of that, but he's, you know, without people (laughs) like him, right. This story would not live on. Yeah. It would be lost to history. I, I really admire, there's a guy I, I don't, Richie Franklin keeps kind of the, the web presence of the, the league going and um, I mean, without those people, this thing would just kind of recede into history. And um, so I, I went into this and I thought there was two things that particularly I thought I can tell, think I could tell a good story um, about the WFL and use them as my central characters. Because I really did think 
I really do think with stories like this, I think you do want to have it anchored in in one person or one one sort of angle to it um, rather than here's everything you need to know. So that's the, I gravitated toward that. The two things were I Gary Davidson, very interesting. The fact that I mean, probably going to get into this. I mean, this guy had three different attempts at major sporting leagues, all going within a couple of years time frame. You know, it just the idea of somebody doing that, that blew me away and what, what his backstory and then, you know, postscript his life since then that drew me in. And then I think the Dolphins angle on this is just incredible. And so I wondered if I could should t- try to tell it just through the idea that that Dolphins undefeated team and then just the the dynasty they had going that that is a NFL that's going to re- remain in NFL lore for a long long time and so Zonka Kick and Warfield all going to the WFL I thought boy that's another way that I could could tell it but I ultimately settled on Davidson I really I liked talking to Gary and um you know We'll probably get into there's definitely some critics of him and it's fair criticism. I mean, my story, I saw a couple places. Some people offered some pretty blistering feedback that I was too soft on on Gary Davidson. And I I just was like, hey, that's a fair, that's fair. It's absolutely fair. There's some definite criticism of the job they did. Um, but I thought him as a character was really interesting. And then I think Howard Baldwin is a really interesting character who you've spoken to. Uh, and the fact that he was like, yeah, I'm, I want to make a movie about Gary Davidson. I thought, okay, I feel like my instincts are kind of right about him as a interesting lead character in this movie that I'm trying to write. So, uh, so, and actually to hint to our audience, uh, uh, Howard's going to make a return uh, appearance on this show uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks. And we're going to sort of get into his very brief dalliance into the world football league, but I am holding in my hands a tattered, but uh, still very much intact copy of Gary Davidson's um, I guess you could call it autobiography uh, written by a guy in in partnership with a guy named Bill Libby called breaking the game wide open. Mm. And um, it's another book that obviously is uh, similarly out of print, but uh, written to your uh, point in the moment uh, it's almost like the the perfect, I wouldn't call it the puff piece, but it's almost a, uh, 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 and I wouldn't call it apologetic, a, a very uh, brash and bravado um, sort of a treatise on uh, how I, he, Gary Davidson, um, was taken on the man three times over. Um, and uh, if you sort of get into the book, it's kind of like, I ain't uh, I ain't done yet. And uh, he kind of was mm. sort of after all this WFL thing. But I mean, so Gary Davidson obviously is, is a white whale. We're hoping that, that Howard and, and a few other folks can get us um, a little closer to that. But I mean, clearly, if there's any guy who's on the sort of Mount Rushmore of challenger or um you know innovator leagues and and um and, and whatnot i mean be- between him and dennis murphy the late dennis murphy who's been a guest on our show who was uh in cahoots with gary on a couple of different endeavors including the uh, aba and wha uh probably howard baldwin from his wha ex- uh, ex- uh, exploits as well and there, there are a handful of others but um I, you know sports illustrated even back in 90 was it 94 when they did sort of like the I guess the top they they, they did a, a rundown of like forty sports people and and executives of of all time. Number thirty nine was Gary Davidson, and I think they did it on purpose because he was so specifically responsible, or at least uh, involved in so much of innovation that you know in the forms of those leagues that he started maybe didn't sort of you know long 
you know, uh, it didn't last long, but but the the influence of them, I mean, for those who haven't been paying attention, still lives on to this very day, including, for example, where the goalposts goal reside in the <laughs> NFL today, et cetera. Yeah, he is. He did. He had an impact on sports. And I also I mean, one of the reasons that I was drawn to him was because I feel like, um, you know, his name shouldn't be lost to history either. You know, I had never heard his name before. And um, I just he deserves to sort of be good or bad. And Gary's when I talk to him, he is, he's open to the criticism. Like he, he's 87. He's had a successful life. He, I think he's proud of a lot of the things that they did. And, you know, I think he felt similarly that like, Hey, we made a run at the NFL and it didn't work out. And I made some mistakes along the way, but like, I'm pretty proud of just how far we got. And so I think he's comfortable with his legacy, which I just thought, I, I, I thought it was kind of cool to kind of bring that back up into people's consciousness, because for all the reasons you're saying, he was like, I, I mean, I don't think, I don't know that he was, it's hard to say this, you know, it's almost 45, 50 years ago, but he wasn't maybe like an A-list sports celebrity, but boy, he was close. He was on magazine covers and he held press conferences and I mean, he knew how to work the media pretty good. And I think even back then, I used the word, the phrase rabble rouser. Uh, he was a rabble rouser, man. He was coming at people. He knew um, in some ways this idea of having your having a brand and being aggressive and outspoken. I mean, he was he was 40 years ahead of like the social media, Instagram world of like, um, let me antagonize a little bit because it's good for business. That was Gary. Gary was do, Gary Davidson was doing that in the seventies. He was picking fights and he, he liked, he liked being in the fray. And so I think, I think that's why I was, I was really interested in him because there's so many elements of, of both him and the leagues and his approach that I thought was, was very much decades ahead of the rest of the world. And now the re- the world has caught up to some of that. So what did you think you knew about him before you reached out to him? Like uh, the research and, and what were you sort of in your head? What were you sort of prepared to, to receive on the other end of the conversation? Um, because he was sort of a, a, a mixed bag character, right? Uh, clearly innovator and pioneer ahead of his time, challenger, brash, all that stuff a hustler in the best cases and even in the worst cases, right? That that's a double-edged word, the hustler, uh, as yeah. we learned with, with Dennis Murphy, who, who embraced <laughs> the term on, on both fronts, uh, as well. Um, but, but I mean, did you, when you finally talked to him, right. Uh, did he, did he fulfill your, your, the, the, the background that you knew about him from your research or did he surprise you or take you in a different direction? No, he, well, he surprised me as far as like being willing to engage in some of the, the critical aspects of it. Um, and then I didn't really, I thought he was sort of, I, I thought he was the, a ringleader and the person who was in charge of everything. And he, he kind of like set up that it was more, he was the ownership management person. And then he turned over, especially to John Bassett. I'm sure we'll get to that name quite a bit. Um, he said, you be the talent procurer, you know? And so John Bassett led the charge to get the Miami three and other players. And so he was, John Bassett played an active role as the man on the ground and getting players. And so 
I was a little bit surprised when we talked that Gary was like, yeah, I just, I didn't meet with the Dolphins players. You know, John, I let John handle that. And that might sound bad, but when you talk to the Dolphins players and other players, the, the kind words they had for John, John Bassett was widely respected, like, but, and very well liked and also very rich. You know, he, he was like the, like an owner that you could rely on, like he's going to make payroll. Um, and so I actually thought it was really interesting, the delegation. I mean, when you run, when you're making a run at the NFL, you have to delegate. I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that like even like Elon Musk could come in and just like do everything. If he wanted to take on a sports league, um, you would have to find the right, perfect person to meet with, with players. And Gary felt like, Hey, John Bassett's the guy and it. And he was right. So I was kind of surprised. Sometimes it's really interesting when you meet powerful people who are aware that, you know, I might not be as good at X as so-and-so. And so so I'm going to put her or him in charge of that. And then they do it. And so I was, I was kind of um, impressed by that. And I'll tell you one thing that I did not expect that we had an interesting conversation with, and it's very debatable. Like there's people that will disagree with this part of the business, but Gary made the, made the case that in retrospect, starting this league in the early to mid seventies, there was parts of American society that were very problematic for, for a startup NFL league. And he was pointing specifically to, there was a, I mean, there's a significant economic downturn between 1973 and 1975. Lots of people lost. Yeah. 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 It, It was a huge factor. And Gary makes the case that that was a, that, that was, that was a giant factor. And, we also got, he, he's not as big into this as, as I kind of got interested, but there's also something to be said for this idea that America was in a post-Nixon, post-Vietnam era where the public was very, became very skeptical of American institutions. And, you know, we think of it primarily through a government lens, but whenever the wheels started to come off with the, with the WFL, and I'm pointing specifically to one incident, which is the, the idea of lying about paid attendance, which happened in the first month of the season. They had very good attendance the first um, four, five, six, seven, eight weeks. Um, they had very good attendance. But um, Philadelphia and I believe one other franchise, they, they had papered the place. They had let people come for free. And in retrospect, Gary said this, a few people said this. If they, if Philadelphia had just said, yeah, we got 50,000 people, we let them all come for free. We gave out tickets to, to, um, to kids to let them come and see our product. They, I think there's a good chance they're, they'd be fine, but instead they, they prop, they propped it up as like, we, we are selling a ton of tickets and they were not selling a ton of tickets. I think about 20% of the gate was actually paid attendance and the other 80% was, you know, kind of handing out tickets. And Gary said this, and I, I tend to think he's right. If they had just said, we got 50,000, but it was all free tickets. But, hey, we got 50,000 people every week coming to our games. There is interest. We can make this work. I, they, they probably would have been fine. But I bring all of that up. And the way that these two points um, connect is I think that like that was a real downfall for the WFL. When the media felt scammed in the early, you know, mid seventies, you know, they really went all in on like, Oh, you guys are full of it, you know? And this was an era when people, I mean, some, 
the 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 illusion of um, trusting um, government institutions and institutions in general. I think it was like on the it was on um, people's minds to be skeptical, and it was a it was sort of a shocking era for that. And so I think the air came out of the tires real quick, and that's what Gary said to me. And I I definitely got pushback during the reporting from from quite a few people. I mean, Upton Bell was just like, I have no, I I, I disagree. I disagree. Um, I think he thought the attendance thing was a big deal, but like that the economic downturn and general American skepticism of institutions was were just excuses. And it's a fair point. It's a fair point. I don't know what the truth of that is, but I did. I was surprised that all of a sudden I'm talking to this guy, Gary Davidson, about <laughs> about the WFL and Watergate is in the conversation also. Um, so that I think that was probably my most surprising thing that popped up during my conversation with Gary. Yeah, it, it, it's OK. So back to back to what I said earlier, not only is there a book here, but but a, a feature length doc. Right. Because there are so many layers and, and arguably that could be a theme. And I I kind of never really sort of put that in my sort of top level of themes, but it's, I mean, there's no question, right? The economic background uh, of the times, right? We've seen this in all of our various explorations. I mean, dating back even to, you know, the earliest days of baseball and stuff. I mean, economy matters, right? And Mm -hmm. discretionary income and uh, oil crisis and, and gas lines. And, you know, do you have the even or odd uh, numbered plate to, to get gas that day? Again, I'm dating myself, but that was a reality (laughs) for a couple of years in the seventies. Um, so it's not unimportant to, to, to bring that up, but however, right, there are some, I think there's absolutely some specific things going on around that time that I'm sure you, uh, figured out and, or had questions around. Like, so for example, I mean, let's look at the facilities, uh, you know, that they were getting, uh, for these teams and frankly, the, um, the locations and the relative, uh, breadth of those locations, right? I mean, you had at various times in the startup of this, I mean, Toronto with, with Johnny Bass, uh, Bass, Johnny Bassett, um, uh, Hawaii, right? Which was also ahead <laughs> of its time, but not really a, a, a quick flight from, from the East Coast. Um, uh, you, you know, you had uh, a New York franchise that, you know, because of Yankee Stadium being offline for renovation and uh, Shea Stadium going to now host like four teams simultaneously in 75, uh, really bereft of any suitable facility aside from uh, an absolutely decrepit and, and it didn't stop the New York Cosmos the next year in 75 with Pele, of all things, uh, to, to use it either uh, on Downing Stadium and Randall's Island, which nobody in New York could get to because it's like under under the Triborough Bridge, right? So <laughs> it, 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 uh, wrapped up in that is... I guess the approach to franchises, and and I really pulled this out when I was talking to Dennis Murphy, it seemed to me, and obviously these are two different guys, but they did overlap, and the and the, the influence of this model certainly played out of the WFL, and it came down to kind of this, this is my summation, it was almost felt like it was sell the franchises first, and the supposed uh, scarcity of those and we'll fill in the blanks and the functionality and the pieces later. And yeah. we and that to me, whether it's Gary Davidson or others related, is the definition of a hustle, right? I mean, maybe that's the way to get it going, right? It's kind of like kindling a fire. Um, 
but you know, I mean, I think, I think corners were cut in trying to get a certain number of franchises uh, and, and the cities that they, you know, the, the majorness of the cities uh, with them. Um, despite the fact that there was a, not a whole lot underneath most of them. Yeah. No, it's a great point. It's a great point. You can take any amount of money. The actual logistics of putting together a sports league is so difficult, you know, and um, from the stadium, you're right. This just, okay. I have $500 million. I'm going to start a league. We have plenty of money. Just the, what cities do you do it in? Do you do it in a city that's already shown an interest in a football team and risk the idea of like, well, we already have the Cleveland Browns. Why would we need the Cleveland whatever? Um, or do you try for new, new cities entirely? And they wrestled with that. Um, it's a very bold choice to put a professional sports team in Hawaii, which, you know, it's a great idea. It, it logistically, man, it was tough. It was really tough. A five hour, um, five hour time difference. It's tough to get to Hawaii. Um, and that's why I don't know that you were going to see a Hawaiian pro sports team anytime soon. They ran into all of that stuff and the stadium deals were just a, I mean, you, you, you just gave a, a tip of the iceberg on what a mess that often was. And when you did find one of these, um, you know, I don't even know. I was going to say second tier stadium in New York. I don't know. Is there a third, third or fourth tier? It's probably more like it. Dusty Rhodes talked for five or 10 minutes with me just about how bad the lighting was. The players, the lighting was terrible. Um, and players hated that part of it, trying to catch a football like borderline in the dark. And then she said the bathrooms and hallways and locker rooms, they had to light candles just to be able to see. And that just added, in addition to actually being difficult to play football and walk around in the hallways and go to the bathroom at these stadiums, it also just added to this, the momentum at a certain point a few months into the season that this was just a, I mean, a laugh out loud league, you know, when, when there's candle lit bathrooms, it just is like, oh my gosh, like, how can I believe this thing's going to work? And so I think there was a real deflation of, of morale around it um, that some of these stadium debacles contributed enormously to. Well, yeah. And look, and, 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 and having that be the situation in the, the, the nation's biggest market and media market on top of that, right. Is, yeah, is not a good look so that literally whatever else is buffeting the league, such as a, a paper gate in, in Philadelphia with the bell or whatever. Right. Um, you know, and when you're fledgling like that, I mean, what we had, we had a great conversation with John Sterling about two years ago and, and his vivid memories of like some of the first games he ever did. And they, they didn't have a, they didn't have a, a, a line in there. So they had to call the game in on the phone and, and hand the phone back and forth on the, on the air. I mean, it was, you know, a, a comical in retrospect, but, um, but I, you know, it, all of this though, you know, to, to Davidson and, and his crew's credit, right. This also doesn't happen without a huge buy-in of faith on, on some level at at every little at every functional point in in this league, whether it's a from the coaching perspective or the players' perspective or the administration, uh, you know, the general management and that kind of stuff. Even media, right? The people like uh, the fledgling TVS uh, syndicated television network, Eddie Einhorn, and, and and whatnot, right? So not 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 a national television contract per se in a in a classic three or four network 
uh, perspective. Obviously, back in the day, there were only three major networks and, and a hand, but a syndicated network that was itself fledgling as well. Everybody seemed to be on the, uh, uh, there was a common belief and, and the narrative that was built around this, right? The shaky as it might have been, ultimately, um, I, there seemed to be quite a few people that wanted to challenge the NFL or uh, perhaps take it to new markets or, or do it better, faster, more fun, more rule, innovative, whatever. And the fact that, that a lot of people believed in that premise, um, you know, that takes a lot too. It's not just a, the fancy of one guy. Yeah. Now the blueprint was there. I mean, it really was, it, you know, to, I'll, I'll make the case for a minute for how close I, I think that they came. Um, I think the papering, the crowd thing really, really hit their, it, it hurt their credibility really bad. It really was a ding on, um, oh, okay. You know, like I said, I think American skepticism was at all time highs um, in the early to mid seventies. And so it was just like, oh, you know, another instance in my life of hearing one thing and we find out the truth is something else. I think that was without that. Um, I think that, that, the, the momentum after six or eight weeks is, is a, it's a very different vibe. Um, and I also think like one of the things that came up a lot as a, as a criticism of, of WFL leadership, including Gary was that they rushed that the plan originally, I think was that they kick off in 1975 and there was a rush to, to go a year early, which means they did a bad job of handing out franchise. They had a bunch of owners that just, I'd say probably about half the owners of the WFL probably had no actual, they shouldn't have been owners. They have, they just shouldn't have been, they didn't have the money. They didn't have, uh, or they, their goals were, I'll, I have the money, but I'm just going to make a quick profit a year or two in. And um, so I, I think that was a, a, a major issue, but the, the logic of going in 1974, there is a, a world in which that was brilliant also because the NFL was on the brink of a work stoppage and this idea that they, they could step in and both try to poach players and also fulfill the American need for football. And there's a, there's a world in which the work stoppage continues for a long time. And the WFL is all of a sudden um, providing football nourishment to the to the public, and unfortunately, I I don't I don't know the exact total. Do you know how long did the work stoppage actually go? Was it only a couple of weeks? I think in the in nineteen seventy four. Yeah, in yeah I, th just... I think that's right. I don't know if it even touched into the uh, actual season, but it certainly uh, it was certainly in the air, shall we say, and and getting more real by the week. Like imagine the WFL with three months of the NFL being stopped in August, September, October. I mean, that's a different universe, you know? And so that was one possibility. And then, you know, I didn't devote a lot of time to this, but, you know, I don't know how, it's hard to tell how serious the Joe Namath thing was, but in, you know, in all of my interviews, it sure sounded like a possibility that Joe Namath signs with the WFL and I think that played a key part in the TV deal kind of falling apart. And boy, you know, you throw those things together and, I, you know, this is definitely revisionist history, but so they don't lie about the crowds. The NFL has a little bit longer of a work stoppage and Joe Namath does pull the trigger on coming. 
you throw those things in there and then all of a sudden the WFL is just on very different footing and you can kind of see um, where it works. And so I, I was really struck by that. Um, in addition to, there's <laughs> definitely, there was definitely a, a lot of mistakes that were made, but I, I would say that when you look at any of these startups, um, you know, I kind of had it in my head the entire time I was writing this. I think you need, I think you need three primary things to take on one of these leagues. One is really good, steady owners that are willing to lose money. I mean, you, I just can't imagine any of these major sports leagues um, right now that it wouldn't take at least three years of really significant losses before you would show a return. And if you don't have a bunch of people that are willing to hemorrhage money and spend money and, and not panic, if you don't have people that are willing to do at least three years, then you're probably in trouble. So I think that's, that's one huge part, the good steady owner thing. And then part, you know, I guess one a on that would be get players. Like you got to get the, like without the talent, I don't know how, um, I don't know how you do it, you know? And so if you don't have ownership that's willing to pay players and you can convince them to see your vision and come, I don't know that you can do it. Um, and then I think the last, the last factor that in my head was, I think you just need good luck, you know, to go back to what I was saying two minutes ago about some of the, uh, the, the bad breaks the WFL had, you know, throw in, sprinkle a little luck dust on there and maybe some of those things um, happen and the WFL gets a couple lucky breaks. So I think that even let's say you wanted to take on the NHL right now and you had great owners who are willing to pay players, you know, a pandemic happens and you, but it might not matter, you know? So I think the luck component of it, it's not nothing, you know, these leagues that have succeeded, they've had a little bit of luck along the way also. So I think, I think those are, that's critical. And the, the WFL just, I think had almost no luck, you know, I think they, they, they did some great things, but the luck factor, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to look at their, their couple of years and be like, yeah, they got really lucky with, X, Y, and Z, there just wasn't much of it. So we got to find out from Joe Namath, who is luckily still with us, whether whether that was uh, an actual thing. Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard him or uh, ask that question. Um, yeah. But look, that, that also wouldn't surprise, right? Because that is absolute, absolutely uh, from the uh, first two or three pages of the WHA playbook with Bobby Hull, right? Yep. And, yep. and uh, by all accounts, right, the WHA was fledgling and and opportunistic and the NHL was probably even more sort of backward, I guess, than the NFL was at this time, because they had just only recently understood that the idea they could expand beyond six franchises around 1967, right? They were years behind the curve on all of that front. Um, And yet, you know, it really took something, um, you know, spectacularly, um, uh, 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 you know, intriguing to to lure uh, such a major name like that uh, for a million dollar check, right? And I, it doesn't it doesn't strain logic to think that maybe somebody like a Joe Namath, even with his ailing knees at the time, right, probably would have been exactly the magic uh, pixie dust or, or elixir, perhaps mm-hmm. to, get, to get the casual fan. And I and I guess that's sort of where it comes into play, right? I mean, all this is about not only challenging the leagues themselves and, and expanding the pie. Um, but you know, it's also the casual fan too, because, um, it gives them the opportunity to kind of maybe more affordably go to a game. All right. So, so many different things to go back. Number, number one, um, 
you, we talk about sort of like the the idea of a Joe Namath and that kind of thing. Um, it it speaks to one of the things that we've sort of teased out with lots of other conversations about other leagues is this sort of um, collective sort of uh, uh, league owned kind of uh, uh, setup versus that of a franchise model, right? And clearly the ABA, WHA, the Gary Davidson world was very much the latter. It was a franchise thing where I will sell you franchises on a hint or a whiff of uh, scarcity. You get in on the ground floor and there'll be value built that way. But of course, the negatives of that become how do you herd those cats when the league has issues or needs to make centralized decisions, right? It becomes a battle of egos. Now, one of those things that um, you know the WHA was at least able to do, despite them having a franchise model, was at least to agree on getting some collective bucks around uh, luring Bobby Hull, right? So th- mm-hmm. throw money in the kitty. Now, I, I give you a, a, I'm going to give our audience a bit of a, of a tip off in our in our next conversation with Howard Baldwin coming up. I asked him specifically that question, and he kind of said. Some of the franchises did the collective thing and and, st- and and put the money in, but there were a whole bunch that didn't. And that speaks volumes, right? Because yeah. if you're going to take one for the team or you're going to try to get this league up and running, um, you know, the all or nothing thing already starting to break when people are hemming about paying to, for the, 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 the best hockey player on the planet at the time. Um, folks were already saying, no, no, thanks, even though it was going to be to their betterment and to the league's uh, uh, functionality early on. Yeah. Yeah, any of these startups, um, you're going to spring leaks. You know, you're going to have like an owner who has a problem or a team that gets kicked out of its stadium or whatever. And that means everybody else has to be steady and, and kind of hold the line. And I, it just wasn't there for the, for the WFL. The, the league ownership had some money and was able to, I mean, I have an anecdote in there about how Detroit, I mean, Detroit is, oh my goodness. I mean, they had 30 plus owners. I mean, it, there are multiple franchises in the WFL that like are potentially among, like if you made a top 25 of the worst, worst run franchises in sports history, they're in the running and Detroit for sure was one of them, but the league found, you know, heard that that players had not been paid in quite some time. And so they, Gary told this anecdote about sending a courier with um, checks for about half of what, the players were owed. So whatever, if, if they were owed a thousand dollars, he sent checks for $500 and the courier shows up in the locker room and starts giving out all the checks. And the minute the players realized it was half the money, they, they roughed up the courier. They were so frustrated by even just getting half the money. And so that was an instance of the league trying to step in and cobble together. Um, but it just, it, it, they, there were too many leaks and not enough steady hands. There was only so much John Bassett and some of the other owners could do. There were some good owners, you know, um, Bassett being one. There were multiple other owners that were really steady. And that's why, I mean, Gary got run off. I mean, let's be honest. He, he, he got, he resigned. I think it was technically considered a resignation, but like he was heading out and it was, it was time for him to go at the end of that first year not even at the end of the first year, like toward the end of the first year, um, you know, the Chicago owner specifically was pretty frustrated with him. And so he eventually got run off and it was just, it was too late. You know, they just did not have enough um, 
ownership backbone. I think like every, <laughs> I say this at a time when like multiple NFL owners still are, are kind of under fire for, for terribly run um, organizations, but you can't have more than a couple of really uh, big potholes in, in one of these leagues. And they just had too many and it just, it eventually capsized the whole thing. So, I mean, you have to give them some credit, though, and, and Davidson in particular, right? So, I mean, ahead of his time, right? Um, I think one of those areas is is new markets, right? So mm. I'm sure back in the day, the the conversation goes around, okay, well, we need some franchises in some of the big media markets so we get some 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 attention, right? So you can't not ignore uh, a Chicago or New York, or I'm sure L.A. was – you know, with the, which ultimately became the sun, the Southern California sun. Right. But then there's also sort of rich, uh, fertile football interest, right. In largely college, uh, you know, strong towns like a Memphis or a Birmingham, right. Along uh, on the list of a uh, forlorn and forgotten uh, or, or, <laughs> or go to markets, uh, you know, uh, and, and have the football literally and figuratively taken away by the the holder of, Lucy and the Peanuts, I guess. Charlotte, right? Uh, Upton Bell, right? Yeah. Moving New York to Charlotte and, and the um and Florida, even Orlando and 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 those, you know, that those were arguably very much ahead of their time too. But you can already see, again, in hindsight, how challenging that can be because you're marketing a product to big cities that have the real thing. Um, and and the comparisons that immediately come. And the attention difficulties, because there is so much other sports going on of a top tier for, for many, many years, married with a whole bunch of new, you know, uh, franchises in markets that kind of didn't really even have any other pro sports going on for them. Yeah. Um, those are two different uh, situations in the same league. It becomes kind of mongrel-like when you're trying to, I guess, sell the big story. Yeah. That's a really interesting topic about the idea of, we still don't, I mean, we have 50 more years of data about like which communities will support a sports team, which, which ones won't, but it's still, we still don't know completely, you know, where, where fan bases are going to show up. I mean, there's still debate about, you know, several big, big time sports teams and communities about their level of support and, um, Gary and and that crew that started some of these leagues in the early 70s, they were pretty good in retrospect. You know, the, the WFL was probably their weakest showcase, the weakest case for their vision of like, no, a team will work here. But when you think about it, there's four NBA teams that that were, you know, um, ABA uh, creations, right? Like uh, I think it was the Nuggets, the Nets the Pacers and the Spurs were all absorbed into the NBA. And that was, that was them scouting out like, no, I think San Antonio can, can handle uh, having a professional basketball team. And so they got a lot of it right. And, um, you know, Charlotte is actually a good example of a team that I'm not sure what the presence of professional sports were in Charlotte in the early seventies, but it has definitely spiked and I think part of that goes to the Davidson crew and Upton Bell. I think Upton Bell is uh, is a big proponent of Charlotte. He he really was uh, uh, that. We spent a lot of time in our conversation talking about how when he moved the New York team down there, he just he just always thought there was an there was a there was a insatiable appetite for sports there and they, that they could do it. And um, and he was right. I mean, it didn't work out with the, with his version of the Charlotte team, but he, he was right about scouting out that 
community. There's just so many factors in, um, you know, I mean, I just, I've been in some conversations over the years, just about the idea of professional football in Los Angeles, you know, it's like, it has had a sordid history um, and professional football in Los Angeles seems like just, well, of course that'll work. Right. And then it has had its significant ups and downs. So I, I consider when I looked at the, the total resume of, of Gary Davidson, that he had a lot more success than failure when it came to identifying communities that were going to work, you know, on, on the flip side, I, you know, the logic for putting a team in Hawaii is really tough. It's really tough from a fan base, from a logistics perspective. And so that was one we had kind of a good laugh about just that the concept in general of this, like, let's start up a league and we'll immediately put a team in Hawaii. And just there, it was almost a guaranteed not to work. And sure enough, you know, it did not. Right, what's this? How about sportshistorycollectibles.com? Oh boy. We love sportshistorycollectibles.com. You've heard us talk about it forever uh, since we began this show. One of our earliest sponsors, our pal Dean Mitchell, out in San Diego. And as the name implies, it's memorabilia from all those leagues and teams that that came and went and thrived and failed, but nevertheless shaped the North American sports landscape of today. And if you're looking for ticket stubs or mini helmets, uh, DVDs, pennants, uh, jackets, even uh, newspapers or uh, stadium replicas, magnet schedules, media got you name it. It's all there for you at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And we're talking about the best in forgotten sports history uh, in basketball and soccer and football and baseball and hockey and all kinds of miscellaneous sports like tennis and racing, uh, the stadiums, the Olympics even. Um, just amazing stuff. And, you know, you, you probably have eBay on your brain when you're thinking about looking for some of those items out there. And sure, eBay is pretty darn good, I guess. And there's, of course, some high-end auction sites out there, too, uh, for sure. But SportsHistoryCollectibles.com is unique in that it focuses on those things that this year podcast is obsessed about which are things that aren't around anymore, in, t- in particular teams and leagues and, and various related ephemera. And the good stuff is also highly uh, photographed and well-described, so you know what you're getting, and the prices really can't be beat. You don't have to worry about losing out on bids at the last minute and all that kind of stuff. And trust me, Dean's got stuff that you're looking for, and it's getting new stuff, not new stuff, but new old stuff, like inventory that's it what's what i'm looking for all kinds of refreshed inventory all the time uh so uh, it's first it's just a sight to behold so you'll you'll lose hours of time just looking and and ogling if you will digitally uh the items from your childhood or from various followings of teams that you might have uh, just plain old forgotten and uh, to see uh, those items there for you and well photographed, uh, you're just gonna just uh, you're gonna be amazed. Then, after looking at more than a few of them, you're gonna say, "Gosh, I gotta have me one or a bunch of them." And that's where our promo code comes in handy, and that's Good Seats. A promo code Good Seats for you at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com for ten, no, fifteen, yes, fifteen percent off all of your purchases. Again, our thanks to Dean Mitchell and his pals at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Promo code GOODSEATS 
for 15% off all of your purchases. As they say, you'll be glad you did. Thanks, Dean, for your sponsorship of the show. And now back to our conversation. Well, he did have ambitions. The word world was in the league, right? And, and sure. the, at least the Canadian franchise, and I'm sure a, a bit of vision, uh, you know, not unlike what the NFL has realized over the years since, right? That there, and frankly, I think the future of the NFL depends on exactly this, which is international markets. Now, how do you tap into that? The NFL's had dalliances with like the World League of American Football and those kinds of things. But um, it's clear that the, the the next phase of growth for that league is to internationalize it. And that yeah. probably means franchises in places like Mexico and England and Canada and all the, you know, and, and I'm sure there was a slight vision, I guess, that Hawaii was the gateway to Asia in some respects. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you don't think these things through, I guess, when you're just trying to get people to cough up the dough and just say yes to put a franchise on the map. Exactly. So, so, all right, let me, a couple of things here. So um, clearly uh, one of the other sort of uh, hooks that, that Davidson went to, which was successful in the ABA and the WHA uh, uh, playbooks, and that was uh, antitrust, right? And, and players' rights and, and the ability to kind of uh, tackle literally, if you will, the, the idea of the uh, closed and uh, uh, perhaps illegally favored uh, setup of the NFL, whether it be, you know, a player's rights to move and um, uh, ability to, you know, get fair market value for their services and that kind of stuff. And uh, there's no question that that always became sort of the, in the foreground, or certainly always in the background, that sort of, shall we say, legal threat, that antitrust threat, that that regulatory um, uh, threat uh, that, you know, made people pay attention whether they wanted to or not. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, he had a good background uh, um, in in the law uh, himself, and then he had smart, very smart attorneys around him, and they also were very aggressive. Um, you know, I think the the WHA, the challenge of the WHA, and the way that um, you know the way that they bound players to teams um, that was the most successful in court. But that was like a big story back then. I mean, this was 50 years ago. And so the idea of player empowerment, I mean, I say in the story, he was 50 years ahead of his time on player empowerment. And I think that NHL um, challenging the NHL's reserve clause was a real, real shot across the bow for the other sports leagues. And then they didn't always win um, legally. I mean, one of my favorite anecdotes that got me interested in this story, and then I included it, was was John Matusak, who was the number one pick in the NFL draft in 1973. And he was one of the first guys that was just like, wow, you're, you know, you're going to, you're going to pay me $15,000 to play as the number one pick. And there was some shenanigans um, from his, I read his book. Um, John Matusak, by the way, most people listening to this podcast probably remember him from the movies and TV shows he was in specifically, he was in the Goonies as Sloth, the character Sloth. Um, (laughs) He had a very interesting second chapter to his life as um, sort of a Hollywood, not an A-lister, but like he was on the list. So he was in a lot of movies and TV shows and things like that. But he was a wild man. And so when he came into the NFL, he signed a contract where I think it was roughly with a signing bonus. It was like three years, $100,000 total. And he just couldn't believe that um, that 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 was not I mean, when you. I forget what you, if you account for inflation and all of that, 
what it would be equal to. Um, it was a good living definitely for the United States in the early 1970s, but it was also, he just couldn't believe that how poorly they were being played. And so he had a really interesting thing where he was, he was haggling with management for that whole first year of his career. He signed his deal and was off to an okay start in the NFL in 1973. And then in 1974 in his book, the way he portrays it is he just, when he heard about the WFL and some of the deals they were giving out and the work stoppage happened, he just, he gave his pads and equipment to one of his teammates and said, I'm leaving, um, you know, the whole the Houston NFL franchise. And I'm going across town to play for the Houston WFL franchise, which was called the Texans, the Houston Texans. Um, and so he did, he went across town, signed a deal with them. I forget the dollar figures, but it was, considerably more um he was supposed to be paid as wfl player but the uh yeah it was the oilers right the houston oilers at the time um they challenged it they challenged they said hey you're under contract for us work stoppage or not um and so i i think he made it like seven plays into his wfl career before um some cops and lawyers according to a couple accounts showed up on the sideline, pulled him out of the game, um, mid game, you know, like a couple of drives into the game and the crowd was booing and yelling at Matusak. And he, he just looked up at the crowd and said, Hey, what do you want me to do? They're like legally not allowing me to go back into the game. And so he never played another stop in the WFL. He was under contract and, and bound by it. But the WFL was in such a renegade headspace that they were like, so what? go, let's do it. Anybody wants to come over, come over. And uh, I think a lot of it wouldn't have held up in court, but they were just, they were fearless and aggressive and um, it worked, you know, it got media attention. And then um, they found some cracks in the system, the dolphins. I mean, to go off on a tangent about the dolphins for a second, that I just, it was one of the most interesting part of this whole thing is that, wow, in the middle of an NFL dynasty in the mid 1970s, the Dolphins players, two Hall of Famers, signed contracts to play out their last season in the NFL and then jump ship over to go to the WFL. I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't even imagine a modern equivalent, which is not really a fair comparison to make. But um, I just couldn't imagine like, oh, my goodness, that happened. Did, did this actually happen? I need to double check this. And sure enough, it did. So, like, you ask about the legality stuff, but I just – from a legal – and even just the um, just the general principle of like we're coming after you, guns blazing. I just it just drew me in, and they just they just didn't care if they ended up in a courtroom or um, getting yelled at on the front pages of newspapers. The WFL they were going to go for it. Yeah, I mean you're mentioning two two stories there: the Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and, and the mini and the, the the going to to Memphis and and. And then the John Matusek story, right? You know, mid game, right? I mean, just the cops coming out or whatever, however he was removed, right? Um, each of them, you could say, is sort of the quintessential uh, story uh, that sort of uh, writ small kind of describes the overall wackiness of the World Football League. And that's just, by the way, in the first season or its first incarnation. Many people forget, frankly, that the second year of the league was actually a brand new league altogether. Yeah. Um, but the irony, the, the joke is that there's just, there's at least a couple of dozen of these stories, right? And it's just it's uh, it's almost unfair if you're sort of trying to put together a storyline because uh, these stories are are not only hard to believe, but they were voluminous, um, yeah. perhaps more so than any other I think modern day 
a sports story of, of its kind. Yeah. It really was one after the other. Just, just, I, I, how could this be true? How can this be true? Like Upton Bell, I don't know if you want to get into it at all, but Upton course, Bell please. was approached. Uh, well, the Paul Sasso part of this story, I, I mean, I think Paul Sasso could be a movie the more I've read about this guy. But, you know, Upton Bell tells a story, uh, told me a story that I included about how Charlotte was really on the ropes. I mean, every team was on the ropes uh, by 1975. They just were, everybody was just um, paddling for for dear life. And Charlotte was hurting and Upton Bell was pretty outspoken about like, we need, we need help. We we're, we need some reinforcements here. And he had gotten pretty disenfranchised with, um, with the WFL league ownership. I mean, Davidson was technically gone, but he was kind of a presence up until the day the league folded. Um, he was sort of the spirit animal of this entire league, whether he was um, the, day-to-day commissioner or not he was still around and a part of it and so um you know upton bell was very outspoken about like hey when is the cavalry going to come here and he got a call one day and it's unbelievable i verified as much of it as possible um but he got a call one day from this guy who said hey i live in tennessee i want to come down i want to meet with you i want to invest a bunch of money in the team i have some big ideas that I want. Um, but um, legit, my name is Paul Sasso, and I'd love to come meet with you. And Upton Bell was very desperate. And he said, Okay, let's do it. So the guy came down and met with him. And right away, Upton described the vibe was not great. It felt very much like a scene out of a um, out of an old mob movie. Um, he felt very, uh, you know, a lot of big guys around Paul Sasso. And Paul Sasso's, um, you know, was pretty, um, succinct about i think he up and asked him hey what do you do for a living and he said um like a sopranos type uh you know i work in um construction management something like that and upton bell got a bad vibe almost right away but this was also somebody that could potentially save the franchise with money and so he listened to him and one of the first things that this guy paul sasso said to him was i want to build a new stadium and i want it to be an underground stadium and <laughs> He folded out this piece of paper and Upton Bell was just thinking, I think he said, what the bleep is an underground stadium? He didn't say that out loud because there was a lot of big dudes standing around Paul Sasso. Uh, Many of them he thought he thinks might have had guns on them. And so he just he got this really bad vibe from Paul Sasso. But he he had the meeting. He heard the guy out. And then shortly thereafter um he found out the truth about paul sasso which is that he was in the witness protection program relocated by the fbi to to tennessee and somehow i i don't know all the details on this somehow paul sasso talked the fbi into letting him use a private jet which he got in and flew down to meet with upton bell and so he everything about this guy fell off to Upton Bell and he was, he was, he was right about it. It turns out that Paul Sasso was in the witness protection program. Um, He eventually, I've never heard of people that get kicked out of the witness protection program, but that happened. Paul Sasso was booted out of the witness protection program. Accounts vary on why exactly, but a lot of it is that Paul Sasso was a lifelong con man who was associated with the mob um, on some level, but almost everybody in his orbit from other mob members to the FBI 
learned pretty quickly, like, we don't know what's true and what's not about this guy. And so Upton Bell did not take <laughs> Paul Sasso's money. And Paul Sasso went back to Tennessee before he was kicked out of <laughs> the, the witness protection program. And, you know, sadly, I guess, um, Paul Sasso was eventually found uh, dead in the trunk of a car. And it's hard to tell exactly how that came to came to be. But some of the obituaries, if you want to Google them, it, it's a wild description of this guy's life. Um, the fact that he was in a room talking to a WFL owner about um, being an investor is just beyond comprehension. But that's that speaks to the level of desperation for this league. And it also is just you know, you said there's this pile of anecdotes about the league. There really are. I mean, you could just go on and on and on. Like I said, the Wikipedia page was like, wait a second. Somebody, this is a Hollywood screenwriter wrote this Wikipedia page. And no, they did not. It was most, most of it appears to be true. I, look, I believe in particular with this league, because it was so short and and there are still some people around who were there and, and original participants. I, I actually, there's plenty of stories left to uncover or unearth um uh, certainly there is video to unearth still uh mm. you know people forget that besides the uh fledgling tvs television network and we um we had uh uh, uh one of the original uh directors and producers uh, of those games uh from uh, a couple of years ago uh talking about the the hijinks around howard zuckerman who who told of told of stories of they'd have the truck literally in the middle of the country not knowing which which game they were going to go to because there were so many franchises that were either going sideways or moving so for example the stars moving hastily to uh to Charlotte or um uh you know Detroit kind of folding and all that kind of, it's Shreveport uh, inheriting the Texans i mean um i mean it was literally that sort of seat of the pants i mean there's so many uh, uh, stories that I'm sure, I mean, I, I don't, I think, I think Howard actually shared some of those that were uh, not known before. I think we got a little bit of publicity on some of the, some of the things there, but I mean, I, all right, let me, so we could go on forever and, and I'd love to, and I, I'm sure you'd like to do that at some point, but um, let me sort of maybe round up with this one. And, and it's, it's something I've sort of seen in all my, my readings and stuff. I don't think you touched on it too much, but I, I think that it wouldn't have been too difficult to kind of maybe think about it or scratch the surface, or maybe it's your a follow-up piece because arguably the 1975 season could be its own follow-up piece, but mm -hmm. I digress. Um, in your opinion and your knowledge, maybe you don't have any on it or, or maybe I'm just sort of, uh, I want to say making it up, but certainly uh, maybe sort of expanding on an idea that maybe is not sort of real, but was there to your knowledge, any, um, shall we say untoward, uh, efforts or espionage or things behind the scenes going on from the NFL as the WFL was was going on because I, I you know I remember a couple of years ago more than a couple of years ago uh, there was this persistent item on eBay um, that one could get this was sort of before really the internet was sort of like uh, so uh, blazing fast as it is now it was literally purported to be and I actually paid ten bucks to get it and I still have it was this sort of printout, uh, like a, a report that was supposedly put together or um, uh, administered or, or ordered by the NFL uh, to get dirt, if you will, on the WFL. And um, depending on who you talk to, there's a belief that the NFL was 
more worried than they were letting on. And we're trying uh, some very interesting things behind the scenes, not a lot of people admitting, uh, to kind of undermine and or figure out ways to corner or somehow otherwise sabotage the WFL. Mm. Does that ring a bell in any of your reporting? Well, (laughs) you know, even the people that, even people like Gary said, um, you know, their, their perspective was that the NFL was worried and Zonka, I mean, Zonka and Warfield and kick, they played an entire year in the NFL, you know, before they went to the WFL with everyone knowing they were leaving. So they had that final season. And I talked to them um, about that idea a little bit. And what's interesting is I, the only thing I got to, as far as the NFL's role in uh, sort of counterattacking was that they definitely behind the scenes work other media members um, to let them know every, every, every misstep that the WFL made. Um, I think that, you know, most of the reporters that covered the, the um, WFL at the time were probably doing NFL stuff also. And so they were trying to work the same sources um, in the NFL. And, but the thing that Gary and multiple other people said, including Upton Bell, who's a pretty, um, I don't know if I call him a critic of Gary, but he definitely has, he has some like critical thoughts about, about Gary Davidson's management style and, and some of the missteps for sure. But one of the things they said is just the, the WFL started tripping over its own feet immediately. Like the NFL barely had to do anything. Yeah, other that's a than, good point. Very good point. Like That's what they said. And that that's kind of what I uncovered. And I didn't go too deep on calling any NFL people to kind of, I mean, one of the things you realize about this story is that, most of the people doing it are in their late seventies to a hundred years old in that range. And so um, it was sourcing is tough. On it was tough on this. And I just, I think the NFL might, you know, this is sort of what, this is more theory than fact. I think, I just think the NFL just stood back and watched and maybe giggled at a bar with one of the other New York times reporters and said like, Oh yeah, the, the, you know, the, the team you put on the front page three weeks ago, you know, they lied about their entire crowd. Are you going to print anything about that? And kind of, and so I, there was some momentum of the media within six to eight weeks. I mean, we're talking about a month and a half or so where the, the coverage had completely turned. And I, I think there's a really good chance that the NFL just, they just whispered things like, Hey, did you see, you know, how, how bad uh, that team looked or the the ticket sales, or you have to use candles to use the bathroom at New York games. So I, I kind of think my, my, my prevailing hypothesis would be that the NFL realized pretty quickly, like we don't actually have to do much to watch this thing spiral out of control. I think there's a lot to that. Uh, it didn't really take much, but uh, I, I, it, I, I do think that the real sort of story to kind of uncover there, maybe some NFL executives of, of your would would want to talk about it sort of after the fact is is to really get to just how worried the league office was about this. Yeah. Thing. And, and maybe and, and that that purported document that that was on eBay for many years, um, you know, was certainly done in preparation. I think this was certainly before the league got going. Right. But, you know, the idea of changing some of the rules and starting a season in the summer and uh, and some of the markets mm. that perhaps were maybe on the drawing board or, or in the 
developmental office of the NFL back then. You know, it, it's it, the, the whole antitrust thing for sure, right? Um, I'm sure alarm bells were of, of a certain level going on at the NFL because, you know, um, I, the, I think there's also something to it. And I think um, I think Howard Baldwin mentioned this in our, our uh, previous conversation is that it, remember too that um, this was fairly close on the heels of the full absorption of the AFL into mm-hmm. the NFL from, I guess it, it concluded or the process concluded in, in 1970. Right. So here we are only four years later. Um, you know, we're here, we are again, challenging. And I, you know, I, I got to think the NFL is like, Oh my God, here's another one. And we got to take this one seriously too. Look what happened the last time. Um, yeah. and, but perhaps maybe it was also a little too early on the back of that because I don't know. I mean, it's a lot of revisionist history. I'm sure. I, you know, it's really interesting. I spent a lot, I spent time talking to Zonka and Warfield because I, I wondered about that last year and what sort of panic levels they detected. And neither one of them seemed like the, I, I was like pretty surprised actually that, um, you know, I detail in the story Zonka calling from John Bassett's office to say, hey, I'm signing this deal. He promised Don Shula, before I sign anything, I'm going to call you. But those three players, Jim Kick, uh, Paul Warfield and Larry Zonka, they sat with John Bassett. They loved what he had to say. They loved the idea of living and playing in Toronto. They they all really thought the community was cool. And so they were sitting there. It was a foregone conclusion. They were going to sign the contract. And just out of respect and following through on his promise, uh, Larry Zonka called. Um, it was funny. Bassett was trying to talk him out of even calling. He just wanted him to sign the contract. And Shula then was trying to talk him out of signing the contract, you know, within a span of a couple of minutes. But Zonka called and he said, hey, I'm I'm this is what they're offering me. I mean, it was a lot of money. It was over a million dollars. And they just the money was was bonkers. And they they you know, Zonka said to me it was life changing money. It wasn't just like a up upgrade on salary. It was like life changing money. It set the table for my family for the next few generations of Zonkas. You know, he's pretty adamant about that. And he called Shula and Shula was disappointed. And um, Zonka, they all signed their contracts. And then I wondered what happened next. I thought, boy, you had to get back um, to your life. These guys played another year in the NFL. And they knew every other question was going to be about like the idea they were only X number of days or weeks or games from being out of the league. And I thought for sure there was going to be some sort of intense pressure and panic. And they just didn't say there was. And I, it's a little surprising. It was, it was quite surprising to me because I thought in retrospect, I mean, the Dolphins were, um, you know, they were a dynasty. They were, they, that 72 team will go down as one of the, no matter what, I guess I guess it's possible in my gener- my lifetime we see another NFL team go undefeated. But um, even then, they're going to go down as as a team that's the only one to do it in a long, you know, whatever number of years. And the idea that a couple of future Hall of Famers were going to jump, I just thought it was going to set off widespread panic. And they just, at least they didn't feel that, you know. And so I just didn't get. You're right. You're you're the thing that you're saying about you know, the NFL had to be doing things. It may very well be true um, to try to tank this thing. Uh, I just didn't uncover it. And I actually 
they, to go one step further, talking to the players, I just was surprised there wasn't um, more chatter, nonstop chatter of like, oh my God, what are we going to do? They're coming for us. And they just didn't say that was the case. Yeah, very interesting. I, I wonder too, Shula, you know, if he was, you know, if it was more of trying to talk him out of it from a loyalty perspective or maybe his inkling that this league wasn't really going to take off and you would be making a big mistake. Yeah. Well, to go back to something you were saying earlier, they did have all sorts of debacles getting into stadiums and playing and when can we have games and all of that stuff. And I mean, I think there's a really strong case that the NFL was just saying to some of the stadiums and some of the, uh, some of the big business people that, that were kind of um, relying upon the NFL Hey, don't, don't start flirting with this other league. Like you got us and we're going to be, you see the trajectory of this league. Um, and so there was definitely an undercurrent of, I wonder if they're sort of carefully leveraging behind the scenes to make it really hard for us to actually get stadium deals. I think that it's a big deal that, that, that may have been the case. So I, um, you know, you can just see, uh, you just imagine this, this NFL kind of just gently nudging like, Hey, before you start flirtations, um, just remember where your bread is buttered, you know, we're a steady thing. And so I, I definitely think those things conspired to kind of keep a little wind in the WFL's face. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the, the all the, the various franchises over the two years or year and a half or year and three quarters of the, of the league, um, only I think Chicago with Soldier Field and uh, the Astrodome with Houston were the only shared mm. facilities. The rest were either new markets altogether, like Jacksonville and the Gator Bowl is another market that was ahead of its time, so to speak, and or not in the same stadia that uh, housed the NFL team, like a Downing Stadium in New York, for example, or um, you know Franklin Field in Philadelphia, right, or Anaheim Stadium in L.A., right. I mean, I was in. in in uh, in in the Orange County, not even in L.A., where the Rams were playing at the time. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's clear that some of that was was certainly happening. All right, well, here's my very last question. Um, in is there anybody, any people uh, that you wish you could have been able to find, either being alive today or not alive, that you thought maybe could have really opened up uh, the door for this story? I mean, I think Gary David is, is probably probably you know, the best and the fact that you were able to get him and, and to go deep on it. And he has some level of clarity of mind, which is, you know, is terrific. But are, are there any other people that you just wish magic wand wise, you could have gotten to go deeper in the story um, to maybe unlock yeah. a few still uh, mysteries? I'll give you two. One, one um, has passed away a long time ago. John Bassett. John Bassett had an incredible role in this. And I think that there's a version of this story if John Bassett's alive, where you just write it about John Bassett and his, his impact. Um, Cause he was really the orchestrator of getting the talent. Like he was the one meeting with players. And, you know, there were even rumors of, of Bassett helping court players for other teams. He just wanted, he wanted the WFL to succeed. And so um, if Toronto slash Memphis couldn't get them, then, um, then he wanted to. And I, I write in the story about it, like he developed this friendship. It was hard to tell how real, how, like how deep the friendship went, but like, I mean, he was hanging out with Elvis Presley on a certain level, you know, and it's like going to concerts and Upton Bell told this story about John Bassett, you know, welcoming Elvis Presley to Memphis football games. And then 
Elvis said, come to some of my concerts. And so he went to um, up and told a story about John Bassett. Elvis comes out on stage and says, I want to thank my friend John Bassett, and lobbed the football off the stage toward John Bassett. And it's just like, wow, that's like, I would have liked to have like experienced the charisma that, that could talk Miami Dolphins into coming to the league and also like become buddy, buddy with Elvis Presley. So I would have loved to have gotten John Bassett. He was also he was also the longtime spirit and the anti-Trump of the USFL too. Yeah, so there's another whole another story there. Yeah, just chapter after chapter, and then um, how he got his money and his battle. I mean, <laughs> one of the staggering things about Bassett was just this idea. He was like, I'm a you know, he was kind of a legend in Toronto, very well regarded and liked. But boy, the minute he started talking about putting a NFL team there, it really went over like a lead balloon, and and Canadian Parliament pretty quickly um, flexed and said, uh, you know, if you do that, we are going to pass um, a measure that, that would not allow that. They did not want, they thought it would be damaging to the CFL. And so they were pretty aggressive about that. And so the idea of being this like local legend, well-respected and having that big flare up of tension, I, that, that, that was also something very interesting to me. Um, and then I guess, you know, the, the entire I, I could have written this story potentially where it's a Joe Namath story, you know, like the how true was it? And I did not get a hold of um, Joe Namath. And I kind of I kind of wish I had. But I also know that um, I really did believe that to tell the story, I wanted to have a central character. And once I started talking to Davidson, I thought he was really interesting. And um, I, and I wanted to go that route. But if you if you said, go back and do it again, how would you do it differently? Like maybe it's a Joe Namath story, you know, like, I don't know how true, maybe, maybe this was just a leverage play. I don't know. Maybe it's 5% truth to it. But um, you know, when I was talking to Howard Baldwin and Gary, they really thought there was a chance they were going to get Namath. And so did the TV provider. And so even if um, you do a story where, you know, Joe Namath tells you that it was, you know, I, I, I'm not, I wasn't going to leave the NFL. Come on, Brian. Even if he tells you that, there's still sort of a version of this story that's pretty interesting as, uh, I mean, he could have potentially been a savior for this thing. Um, so I guess if, if I were doing it, if I were starting from scratch, I would love to somehow have dinner with uh, John Bassett or potentially explore a Joe Namath a heavy Joe Namath story. Well, look, I, regardless of that, right, uh, this is a, a screamingly interesting piece. Um, it uh, begs for a part two. Uh, it begs for <laughs> a book treatment. It begs for even a documentary film treatment. And, um, you know, I, I know you've got your own distractions and your own sort of passions and, and other things to, to get to. But uh, if you're looking for a vote of confidence for any of those uh, embellishments of, the, of this piece, which itself is is fantastic. Um, you certainly have it from me, and I'm sure a whole lot of listeners of this uh, of this conversation, of this episode, because I do believe there's plenty more there. And I think, in many respects, it's almost as timely as today's headlines when we see, you know, again two new challenger leagues uh, stepping up to their plate, uh, taking some swings at uh, at the uh, at the man. Uh, it's it just uh, it, it, football just seems to intrigue people. There always seems to be. Uh, people who believe that there is uh, more opportunity uh, and maybe in, in this era we're streaming and and uh, big stadiums or lots of extra stadia for lots of extra things to, to fill and, and sports and leisure time 
and the big money now behind it, uh, even more so than it's ever been. Um, don't know. It just seems as relevant as ever. Um, you know, to to learn about not the not only the innovations of what came before, but maybe the watchouts for what not to do, and recognizing that history in many cases actually repeats itself. Sure. Well, what do you think? What do you think it would, would it take for a league to to kind of challenge the NFL and be successful? Wow. Um, I get to answer a question. Thanks. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm curious. I, you know, you spent a lot of time on this topic. I can see yeah, you. Well, I, I, what do I know? But I, I, I think, um, I guess it feels to me like uh, at this time in history, in terms of how much of a big business sports has become, I mean, we're talking things like private equity and uh, 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 an acquiescence, I guess, around gambling and sports, uh, which was so taboo for such a long period of time. And by the way, what could go wrong with that again? We'll see. <laughs> um, uh, just the sheer um, uh, magnitude of the money involved, especially when it comes to uh, leveraging or hijacking or somewhere in between cities uh, to get new stadiums or threaten to move and all that kind of stuff, the high stakes nature of that. Um Media, um, you know, television, maybe not sort of as powerful as it used to be, but certainly streaming is and, and a thousand niches uh, blooming and, and the, the, the economic support of a niche can actually be um, foundational enough revenue wise versus a, a big broadcast television contract. Um, it, it, to me, it feels like there's ample opportunity, not only for, let's call them alternate football leagues, but also all kinds of alternate sports that have never risen to the pro level or maybe renewed efforts like indoor soccer, sort of, again, like the old MISL back in the day. I know there's the MASL now, but you know, it's, it's more minor league relative to what could be pro. Um, to answer your question specifically, I think it's probably more of a, um, either an alignment or I don't want to say the word feeder, but some kind of um, uh, a part of the overall uh, NFL complex where uh, another league or two could sort of live on, right? I, I, I think flag football, uh, which has a bit of an investment from, um, from the NFL, could be a, an aligned league that stands alone on itself by itself, but also is a skill developer for the big show. I think something in the spring, whether it's a merger of whatever this USFL thing, uh, I'd like to think of it as the spring league with some new, a new coat of paint from uh, still questionable. Uh, uh, intellectual property uh, means uh, and the next 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 version of the XFL. Um, let's assume that that kind of combines. I do think there's room for spring football, right? I, as a direct con uh, challenger or competitor, no, but as a an aligned uh, relationship, maybe with the NFL, either formally or not. Um, as I said earlier, plenty of talent out there uh, and there is no minor league football system, right? College is essentially the minor leagues, right? So the G League may be a model that the NFL could, you know, perhaps adjunct by whatever sort of succeeds, let them do all the hard work and the pioneering and, and the NFL could invest in it and, and take it over over time. And I think the other part, as I hinted at before, is international, right? So that I think the NFL literally can't go much further than the current models allow it to. Um, aside mm -hmm. from incremental growth and, 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 and inflation and that kind of stuff, but absolutely international markets. And the, the NFL has proven that they, 
They haven't been able to do it on their own yet. So it might take either some seed money from them or some other renegade in the in the vein of a Gary Davidson uh, to create uh, either in cahoots with or at least understanding the NFL's needs to start developing these other markets. I mean, the NBA is doing it with the with the Africa League. Um, it's absolutely got to be the next thing to do. And, and um, I, so the long-winded way of saying, I think the answer is yes, there's room for it. Um, it's not another NFL or a challenge or two. I think it's more of an alignment with or a feed or two that can be ingredients for either expansion of the, of the thing uh, uh, geographically or to enhance the, the skill set of, of what comes into the league and maybe even replacing uh, some of some aspects of the college game, which are, uh, I would argue, going sideways on a whole bunch of different levels. <laughs> how, about, how about that as an answer? Yeah. No, what I do think, you think? I, think I mean, do you, do, you, uh, do you think any of these leagues are going to live on? Do you think indoor, do you think arena football could come back? I mean, there's another skill set, you know, I mean, I know it was a show, kind of a show, but, you know, a lot of players like to play it and it's, you know, it's fun to watch. I think, I think everything you said is, is there's truth to that. Um, and I, I can't imagine, you know, I was going to ask you spring versus fall. I, I just don't see another league be, being able to start up in the fall. I just think there's no, totally that's one agree. thing that uh, WFL thought they'd get out of the gates in. I think they started playing games in like mid to late June. They'll get, we'll get out of the gates in a couple of weeks, but then they were going head to head against the NFL. And I just, I just don't, it's too entrenched. The NFL isn't the most popular sport in the United States. It's the most popular thing. When you look at the most watched things every year, it's not even close. Like the NFL is, is a, there's no, um, you know, no, there's it's no also, TV it's also show propping up television. It's propping yeah. up live television and live broadcast television. I mean, yeah, from advertising to ratings, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it, ha- it would have to be spring. And I think the USFL, correct me if I'm wrong here. I do think there is a loose affiliation right now, right. Between the USFL and the NFL. I think there's some, I, I don't know all the details on it, but, um, so I think you're right, like sort of um, syncing up somehow is probably essential. Um, the one thing I would just say is I just don't know how anybody would ever have success without like getting five great players. Like getting like if you told me Elon Musk convinced Mark Cuban to come in on a spring football league and they talk to Aaron Rodgers and four other all pros, and they're going to come and be in the initial startup of this. And they each get 25% of the franchise, blah, 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 blah. I could see that. I don't know if you're ever going to really make a dent. If you have a bunch of guys that could have been fifth round NFL draft picks, but instead came to your league. Like, I just think that there there'd have to be, a big splashy, like to go back to, I talked about MMA earlier. Like if somebody wants to take on the UFC, I think you got to sign like Conor McGregor and three other really elite fighters, even if they're at the end of their career and say, you know, you, these are A-list people come see them perform. And so I don't know. I think that's kind of the, the X factor. Like if you don't have that, I just don't know how you make it work. I guess you could have a bunch of really wild owners that make you really interested. I don't know. Um, But I, I do think the talent thing is, is just, I don't know how you ever do it without having, like, I don't, this is, uh, I probably shouldn't even say this, but I don't know if I could name a single USFL player. They're, They're playing games right now. I don't know if I know a single guy that is in the league. And I think that's a problem. Correct. And um, how long will it take to to build those stories? And um, 
you know, uh, it still remains to be seen, right? I, you know, uh, certainly there aren't many fans. I mean, they came out for that first game with Birmingham, but uh, you know, mm. it, there, there's a whole lot of, uh, uh, of intrigue there. So I, you know, in some respects, we've sort of seen this movie before, but um, there's a reason why people keep taking shots at it again. And I think even more so than ever, more than any other era in modern day pro sports history is that the money now is that it's such an exponentially larger level now. Um, it's, it's gone be, I mean, sports is really kind of intersected with so many other things like certainly commerce, but real estate, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, look at now the model for, I mean, there's no, there's no team now in any of the major leagues that doesn't want or desire its own stadium to the exclusion perhaps of any other sports team in their market, because they want to fully control their own revenue streams it to the point of buying up and or building around said location for other means, just as a mixed use development project, right? Look at what truest uh, park in Atlanta is doing. I mean, it's literally in a suburb. It's like a suburban, I, I don't know. It's it's a suburban Disneyland concoction, if you will. I don't, I don't we call business buildings, you know, uh, commercial buildings, uh, uh, Disneyland. But I mean, essentially, it's its own little walled off uh, uh, world, if you will, that, mm-hmm. you know, or, or or the buying around Wrigley Field in, in Chicago. Right. I mean, it's just become uh, the Cubs zone. And, you know, even if the even if it's out of season, come skate next to the park, you know, uh, <laughs> stay at the hotel across the street where the McDonald's used to be. I mean, uh, it's the bears are moving into Arlington, uh, Arlington Heights, probably. I mean, they're going to probably do the same thing. Um, so it's sports has, um, I want to say it's perverted, but it's, it's, it's certainly metastasized into something yeah. far more, uh, economically, uh, complex, different and of a scale that, um, you know, belies some of the little stories that we talk about, about the past. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I just there's too much money involved now and globalization of the sport that people are still just not going to stop trying to get their piece of it. And I'll look, I think there's also a whole bunch of people out there that are uh, that look at the NFL as being you, it's at its peak. It's not going to get any better than that. Um, and when CTE and uh, the economics and labor issues and um, I, you know, and the, and cities and municipalities pushing back somehow on, on being held up for these stadiums and, and, and tax money and all that stuff. I think there are a bunch of people who think that it can't go anywhere, but down from here. So, you know, well, the, the, I, as long as, as long as these conversations still exist, I guess we'll keep podcasting because it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving, <laughs> uh, because in many respects, history repeats itself. And, um, we love to go back and, and, rediscover or frankly for the first time discover that some of these issues are actually maybe writ smaller um not necessarily new but uh as timely as they ever were so um yeah in case in point this story the wfl uh, and hopefully others to come from you ryan um uh, can i throw one more can i throw one more curveball at you go ahead um i thought about this a lot as i was working on this wfl story do you do wordle you know what wordle is oh sure of course Okay, Wordle. So Wordle came along, I don't know, what, four months ago, five months ago, something like that. I, I've been, I, I right. played it for, I played it for about four months now. And as I was doing it, I, I thought, wow, what's this Wordle thing? And then I started playing it. And 
the first time I did it, I was like, oh, that was really fun. And then I couldn't believe they made me wait till midnight to do it again. And I thought, what a disastrous idea. You should be able to just go on and just do Wordle over and over again. I can't tell you how wrong I was about that. It created sort of a scarcity um, intrigue to come back the next day. I mean, I know a bunch of people that would do it at 12.01 a.m. because they got really into it. And there was something about that 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 piqued people's interest and made them wait. And they they had a an appetite for it. But it wasn't – I think there's a chance that a lot of people would have played Wordle, done it 37 times on day one and not done it again. And so – as I was working on this WFL story, it really made me think about, you know, the NFL, the NFL is year round at this point, sort of in its interest. You know, we're talking about the draft right now, but I did wonder, could there be football games on 12 months a year? And I would want to watch them. And I, I don't know, I, or even 10 months a year. And it made me wonder if the NFL, the amount of games that they have right now, is it the peak amount? I mean, we're up to 17 regular season games with, um, you know, an extra play. Is there an extra playoff round? Yeah, they added a playoff team. I just wondered, even if the USFL was super exciting, would I be ready to be starting up on football games again? Um, and so the the Wordle thing really made me, made me think hard about the idea of um, being hungry for something, but only hungry for that the right amount, you know? Scarcity versus saturation. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, if, yeah. if there were good football on 10 months a year, do you think you would watch it? And I think it goes back to what I was hinting at before. If there's, if there's some level of coordination and understanding that the stuff outside of the main season is really ancillary and table stakes. And could they, could they be of intrigue enough to have a league say around flag football or a European league, mm. uh, maybe uh, in warmer markets uh, in the NFL offseason. Sure. But, but it's, if, if the NFL has anything to say or do about it, it's going to be with the uh, pretty explicit understanding that this is just part of the NFL pyramid uh, of which the, the, the real original thing is the top of, right? But mm-hmm. I think that the counter to your argument, which is a good one, is it's business one-on-one diversification of revenue streams and keeping interest and revenues that come from that interest alive before and after said season. Um, Cause we've already perfected the in season and I, you know, this NFL network's got stuff to fill in the rest of the year. Right. Um, mm-hmm. There's, there's um, and I just, you know, flag football to me is intriguing because number one, it, it maybe is a pathway out of the safety problems. And number two, it's also uh, a way to develop some, some level of skills that are not college football and they're, that aren't these spring leagues, which is basically the same product, but clearly inferior to the real thing. So it's different enough where people could got to, to me, that's like indoor soccer. Indoor soccer, you know, when it came about was like, you know, the whole reason it existed in the first place was to keep players fresh and develop some closer ball skills and yet some people tinkered with it, put some dasher boards around it. And it became really interesting to watch by itself, even for a whole bunch of fans who weren't even soccer fans. So I, I think there's lots of little seeds that can germinate into, let's call them minor leagues or, or whatever, uh, around elements of pro football and maybe feed in and not upset 
the big boys uh, when they play in the, you know, in September and October. But, mm. you know, what do I know? I'm just a little podcast guy, just uh, intrigued with <laughs> how we got here in the first place. And I can't thank you enough. This has been more than wonderful. I, you know, I, I said it before and I'll say it again. I think you're just scratching the surface on stories. I'm sure you have a life to live and other things that you want to pursue, but um, I, I can't imagine you will get more inquiries as people uh, continue to discover this piece, which will promote the hell out of uh, about um, tell us more. And, and I would think you've got a company uh, that you're part of that, um, you know, could, I know they got rid of classic sports. I know 30 for 30 isn't as uh, active as it was before, but you know, um, there's clearly resources there. And um, I know you touched a nerve with this one for sure. Cause you touched mine. I know that. I'll write the movie script. I'm in. Count me in. Honestly, I cannot get enough of the WFL football story. Uh, conjecture, uh, stories, history, um, what ifs, all of it. Uh, it's it's probably the quintessential uh, best example of why we do this show and, and so much more to unearth and to uncover. Uh, and I'm officially jealous, of course, of Ryan uh, for uh, uh, getting to talk to Gary directly and uh, rest assured uh, we are on the case as well. It's uh, kind of a white whale for us. And um, uh, we look forward, hopefully, knock on wood, uh, for our own chance to talk to Gary, hopefully in a little bit more elongated form and hear directly from the man himself uh, about what was going on, not only during that league, but uh, his other exploits in the uh, ABA and the WHA. Um, and uh, rest assured, many fascinating uh, tales to come and and pursuits uh, thereof. Uh, you can follow Ryan uh, and his exploits, his great writing, really good writer, uh, at ESPN.com, of course. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Ryan Hockensmith. It's all one word at Ryan, R Y A N, Hockensmith, at Ryan Hockensmith. Um, and you can follow us, of course, on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available and on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, our website, as aforementioned, is GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's where you'll find this episode, number 260 with Ryan Hockensmith, uh, as well as every of the uh, other 259 past episodes and all the episodes to come f after this one. We will post them all there. Um, of course, the best way of, to get uh, all the episodes uh, is to just put us in your uh, podcast feed or follow it or whatever. We're available wherever you can find podcasts. I mean, there's really no excuse not to to, to, to find it and, and, and get on board, shall we say. Um, you can also, uh, what else? You can send email to us if you'd like. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can sign up for our little weekly email newsletter. It's a little tip sheet, very basic. Gives you a little head start on what uh, we're going to be talking about uh, this coming week. And, um, you know, that's all we got for you at this point. Um, and, uh, of course, Jerry Payne can't do the show without him. Thank you, kind sir. A tip of our, uh, I don't know, our... Uh, 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 our Florida Blazers uh, cap uh, in your general direction this uh, this week. Thank you. And um, to all of our great listeners, I appreciate your, uh, your listenership. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week with more fun 
and frivolity, and God knows what the topic will be, but we'll find something for sure. Thanks very much for listening. Take care and stay safe, everybody. Bye. Bye.